Listening to the 192nd semi-annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on KSL FM Midvale, KSL Salt Lake City. From the Conference Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, this is the Sunday afternoon session of the 192nd semi-annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with speakers selected from leaders of the church. Music for this session is provided by the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. This broadcast is furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited. President Dallin H. Oaks, First Counselor in the First Presidency of the Church will conduct this session. Brothers and sisters, we welcome you to the Sunday afternoon session of the 192nd Semiannual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. President Russell M. Nelson, who presides at the conference, has asked me to conduct this session. We extend our greetings to members of the Church and friends everywhere who are participating in these proceedings by radio, television, the Internet, or satellite transmission. The music for this session will be by the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square under the direction of Mac Wilberg and Ryan Murphy, with Andrew Unsworth and Joseph Peebles at the organ. The choir will open this meeting by singing, There is Sunshine in My Soul Today. The invocation will then be offered by Brother Bradley R. Wilcox, who serves as second counselor in the Young Men General Presidency. Oh 
Dear Father in heaven, it is good for us to be here. Thank you for this opportunity we've had to worship during this conference. We're grateful for the women and the men who lead out in this great work. We're grateful for our prophets and their wives and their families, and we're grateful for the sacrifices that they make in our behalf. We are mindful of missionaries all over the world. Please bless our service missionaries, our teaching missionaries, our senior missionaries, our mission leaders, and all those who are moving this work forward. We are grateful for them. We pray for our youth and young adults, how we love them. Please bless them to be strong, to resist temptation, to do as our prophet has asked them to do today, to overcome the world and prepare the world for the second coming of thy son. May he come quickly, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We will now be pleased to hear from President Henry B. Eyring, second counselor in the First Presidency. He will be followed by Elder Ryan K. Olson of the Seventy. After his remarks, the choir will sing, My Heavenly Father Loves Me. We will then hear from Elders Jonathan S. Schmidt and Mark D. Eddy of the Seventy. President Eyring. My dear brothers and sisters, I am grateful to be gathered with you in this General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We have felt your faith and your love wherever you are. We have been edified by the inspired teaching, the powerful testimonies, and the magnificent music. I encourage you to continue striving to qualify to return to Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. Wherever you are, 
on the covenant path, you will find a struggle against the physical trials of mortality and the opposition of Satan. As my mother told me when I complained of how hard something was, she said, Oh, Hal, of course it's hard. It's supposed to be. Life is a test. She could say that calmly, even with a smile, because she knew two things. Regardless of the struggle, what would matter most would be to arrive at home to be with her Heavenly Father. And she knew she could do it through faith in her Savior. She felt that he was close to her. In the days she knew she was about to die, she talked with me about the Savior as she lay in her bedroom. There was a door to another room near her bed. She smiled and looked at the door when she spoke calmly of seeing him soon. I still remember looking at the door and imagining the room behind it. She is now in the spirit world, and she was able to keep her eyes on the prize she wanted, despite years of physical and personal trial. The legacy of encouragement she left for us is best described in Moroni 7, where Mormon encourages his son, Moroni, and his people. It is a legacy of encouragement to a posterity, as was my mother's to her family. Mormon passed that legacy of encouragement to all who have determination to qualify through all their mortal tests for eternal life. Mormon begins in the first verses of Moroni 7 with a testimony of Jesus Christ, of angels, and of the Spirit of Christ, which allows us to know good from evil and so be able to choose the right. He puts Jesus Christ first, as do all who succeed in giving encouragement to those struggling upward on the path to their heavenly home. Open quote, For no man can be saved, according to the words of Christ, save they shall have faith in his name. Wherefore, if these things have ceased, then awful is the state of man, for they as though there had been no redemption made. But behold, my beloved brethren, I judge better things of you, for I judge that ye have faith in Christ because of your meekness. For if ye have not faith in him, then ye are not fit to be numbered among the people of his church. Close quote. Mormon saw meekness as evidence of the strength of their faith. He saw that they felt dependent 
on the Savior. He encouraged them by noting that faith. Mormon continued giving them encouragement by helping them see that their faith and meekness would build their assurance and their confidence of success in their struggle. Open quote. And again, my beloved brethren, I would speak unto you concerning hope. How is it that ye can attain unto faith, save ye shall have hope? And what is it that ye shall hope for? Behold, I say unto you that ye shall hope through the atonement of Christ and the power of his resurrection to be raised unto life eternal, and this because of your faith in him, according to the promise. Wherefore, if a man have faith, he must needs have hope, for without faith there cannot be any hope. And again, behold, I say unto you, that he cannot have faith and hope, save he shall be meek and lowly of heart. Close quote. Mormon then encourages them by testifying that they are on the way to receiving the gift of their hearts, being filled with the pure love of Christ. He weaves together for them the interactions of faith in Jesus Christ, meekness, humility, the Holy Ghost, and the firm hope of receiving eternal life. He encourages them this way, open quote, for none is acceptable before God, save the meek and lowly in heart. And if a man be meek and lowly in heart, and confesses by the power of the Holy Ghost that Jesus is the Christ, he must needs have charity. For if he have not charity, he is nothing. Wherefore, he must needs have charity. Looking back now, I see how that gift of charity, the pure love of Christ, strengthened, guided, sustained, and changed my mother in the struggle on her way home. Open quote, And charity suffereth long, and is kind, and envieth not, and is not puffed up, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, if ye have not charity, ye are nothing, for charity never faileth. Wherefore, cleave unto charity, which is the greatest of all, for all things must fail but charity is the pure love of Christ, and it endureth forever. And whoso is found possessed of it at the last day, it shall be well with him. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, pray unto the Father with all the energy of heart that ye may be filled with this love, 
which he hath bestowed upon all who are true followers of his Son, Jesus Christ, that ye may become the sons of God, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, that we may have this hope, that we may be purified even as he is pure. I am grateful for the encouragement of Mormon's example and teaching. I have been blessed as well by my mother's legacy. Prophets from Adam to the present day, through teaching and by example, have strengthened me. Out of deference to those I knew personally and their families, I have chosen not to seek to verify the details of their struggles or to speak of their great gifts publicly. Yet what I have seen has encouraged me and changed me for the better. At the risk of invading her privacy, I will add a brief report of the encouragement of my wife. I do so carefully. She is a private person who neither seeks nor appreciates praise. In fact, whenever she's—she cannot speak now, but when she's nearby and I'm praising her to somebody who's there, she always goes like this to suggest (laughs) enough, enough. We have been married for 60 years. It is because of that experience that I now understand the meaning of these scriptural words, faith, hope, meekness, enduring, seeking not our own, rejoicing in the truth, not thinking evil, and above all, charity. On the basis of that experience, I can bear testimony that apparently ordinary human beings can take all of those wonderful ideals into their daily lives as they rise through the buffetings of life. Millions of you listening know such people. Many of you are such people. All of us need such encouraging examples and loving friends. When you sit with someone as their ministering sister or brother, you represent the Lord. Think of what he would do or say. He would invite them to come unto him. He would encourage them. He would notice and praise the beginning of the changes they will need to make. And he would be the perfect example for them to emulate. No one can completely do that yet, but by listening to this conference, you can know you are on the way. The Savior knows your struggles in detail. He knows your great potential to grow in faith, hope, and charity. The commandments and covenants he offers you are not tests to control you, 
They are a gift to lift you towards receiving all the gifts of God and to returning home to your Heavenly Father and the Lord who love you. Jesus Christ paid the price of our sins. We may claim that blessing of eternal life if we will have faith in Him, enough to repent and become like a child, pure and ready to receive the greatest of all the gifts of God. I pray that you will accept His invitation and that you will offer it to others of our Heavenly Father's children. I pray for our missionaries across the world. May they be inspired to encourage each person to want and to believe that the invitation is from Jesus Christ through His servants who have taken His name upon them. I testify that He lives and leads His Church. I am His witness. President Russell M. Nelson is the living prophet of God for all the earth. I know that is true. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen. What an honor to speak to you in this session of conference. Today I address you as friends. In the Gospel of John, the Savior taught that we are His friends if we do what He asks us to do. It is our individual and collective love of the Savior and our covenants with Him that bind us together. As President Irene taught to you, I wish to say how much the Lord loves you and trusts you. And even more, I wish to tell you how much He depends on you. When I was called as a general authority by President Nelson, I was flooded with emotions. It was overwhelming. Julie and I anxiously awaited the Saturday afternoon session of General Conference. It was humbling to be sustained. I carefully counted the steps to my designated seat so as not to fall in my first assignment. At the conclusion of that session, something happened that had a profound effect on me. The quorum members formed a line and greeted us one by one. Each one shared their love and support. With a hearty abrazo, they said, Don't worry, you belong. In our relationship with the Savior, He looks on the heart and is no respecter of persons. Consider how He chose His apostles. He didn't pay attention to status or wealth. He invites us to follow Him. And I believe he reassures us that we belong with him. This message especially applies to the youth of the Church. I see in you what President Nelson sees in you. He said that there is something undeniably special about this generation of youth. Your Heavenly Father must have great confidence in you to send you to earth at this time. You were born for greatness. I am grateful for what I learned from the youth. I am grateful for what, I, what my children teach me and for what our missionaries teach me and for what my nieces and nephews teach me. Not too long ago, I was working on our farm with my nephew, Nash. He is six and has a pure heart. He is my favorite nephew named Nash, and I believe I am his favorite uncle speaking in conference today. 
As he helped me come up with a solution for our project, I said, Nash, that is a great idea. How did you get so smart? He looked at me with an expression in his eyes that said, Uncle Ryan, how do you not know the answer to this question? He simply shrugged his shoulders, smiled, and confidently said, Jesus. Nash reminded me that day of the simple and yet profound teaching, the answer to the, most, to the simplest questions and to the most complex problems is always the same. The answer is Jesus Christ. Every solution is found in Him. In the Gospel of John, the Savior said to His disciples that He would prepare a place for them. Thomas was confused and said to the Savior, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The Savior taught his disciples that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the answer to the question of how to come unto Heavenly Father. Gaining a testimony of his divine role in our lives was something I learned as a young man. While I was serving as a missionary in Argentina, President Howard W. Hunter invited us to do something that had a profound effect on my life. He said, We must know Him. We must know Christ better than we know Him. We must remember Him more often than we remember Him. We must serve Him more valiantly than we serve Him. At that time, I had been concerned with how to be a better missionary. This was the answer to know Christ, to remember Him, and to serve Him. Missionaries throughout the world are united in this purpose, to invite others to come unto Christ by helping them receive the restored gospel through faith in Him and His Atonement, and through repentance, baptism, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, and enduring to the end. To our friends who are listening to the missionaries, I add my invitation to come unto Christ. Together, we will strive to know Him, remember Him, and serve Him. Serving a mission was a sacred time of my life. In my last interview with him as a full-time missionary, President Pincock spoke of the upcoming changes in mission leaders as he and his wife were also nearing the completion of their service. We were both sad to be leaving something that we loved so much. He could see that I was troubled by the thoughts of not being a full-time missionary. He was a man of great faith and lovingly taught me as he had for the previous two years. He pointed to the picture of Jesus Christ above his desk and said, Elder Olson, it is all going to be okay because it is his work. I felt reassured knowing that the Savior will help us not just while we are serving but always if we will let him. Sister Pincock taught us from the depths of her heart in the simplest Spanish phrases. When she said, Jesucristo vive, I knew it was true and that he lived. When she said, Eldades y hermanas les amo, I knew that she loved us and wanted us to follow the Savior always. My wife and I were recently blessed to serve as mission leaders to labor with the outstanding missionaries in Uruguay. I would say that these were the best missionaries in the world, and I trust that every mission leader feels that way. These disciples taught us every day about following the Savior. 
During regular interviews, one of our great sister missionaries walked into the office. She was a successful missionary, an excellent trainer, and dedicated leader. She was looked up to by her companions and loved by the people. She was obedient, humble, and confident. Our previous visits focused on her area and the people she was teaching. This visit was different. As I asked her how she was doing, I could tell she was troubled. She said, President Olson, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I will ever be good enough. I don't know if I can be the missionary that the Lord needs me to be. She was a remarkable missionary, excellent in every way, a mission president's dream. I had never worried about her abilities as a missionary. As I listened to her, I struggled to know what to say. I silently prayed, Heavenly Father, this is an outstanding missionary. She is yours. She is doing everything right. I don't want to mess this up. Please help me know what to say. The words came to me. I said, Erdmana, I am so sorry you are feeling this way. Let me ask you a question. If you had a friend you were teaching who felt this way, what would you say? She looked at me and smiled with that unmistakable missionary spirit and conviction. She said, President, that is easy. I would tell her that the Savior knows her perfectly. I would tell her that He lives. He loves you. You are good enough, and you've got this. With a little chuckle, she said, I guess that that applies to our friends, then it also applies to me. When we have questions or doubts, we may feel that the solutions are too complex or that finding answers is too confusing. May we remember that the adversary, even the father of all lies, is the architect of confusion. The Savior is the master of simplicity. President Nelson has said, The adversary is clever. For millennia he has been making the good look evil and the evil look good. His messages tend to be loud, bold, and boastful. However, messages from our Heavenly Father are strikingly different. He communicates simply, quietly, and with such stunning plainness that we cannot misunderstand Him. How grateful we are that God so loved us that He sent His Son. He is the answer. President Nelson recently said, The gospel of Jesus Christ has never been needed more than it is today. This underscores the urgent need for us to follow the Lord's instructions to His disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. To those who will choose to serve, I can attest to the blessings that will come as you heed a prophet's call. Serving is not about you. It is about the Savior. You will be called to a place, but more importantly, you will be called to a people. You will have the great responsibility and blessing of helping new friends understand that the answer is Jesus. This is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and this is where we belong. Everything that President Nelson lovingly encourages us to do will lead us closer to the Savior. To our magnificent youth, including my nephew Nash, Throughout your life, no matter how difficult or confusing the challenges may be, you can always remember that the answer is simple. It is always Jesus. As I have heard those who we sustain, as prophets, seers, and revelators say on many occasions, I also say that we love you, we thank you, and we need you. This is where you belong. 
I love the Savior. I bear witness of His name, even Jesus Christ. I testify that He is the author and finisher of our faith, and He is the master of simplicity. The answer is Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. A few years ago, I had a life-changing experience during a sacrament meeting in our home ward in Arizona. As the sacrament prayer indicated our willingness to take upon ourselves the name of Jesus Christ, the Holy Ghost reminded me that Jesus has many names. This question then came to my heart. Which of Jesus' names 
should I take upon myself this week? Three names came to my mind, and I wrote them down. Each of those three names contained Christ-like attributes that I wanted to develop more fully. In the week that followed, I focused on those three names and tried to embrace their corresponding attributes and characteristics. Since that time, I have continued to ask that question as part of my personal worship. Which of Jesus' names should I take upon myself this week? Answering that question and striving to develop the related Christ-like attributes has blessed my life. In his great intercessory prayer, Jesus expressed this important truth, and this is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. Today I'd like to share with you the blessings and power that come from knowing Jesus Christ by His many names. One simple way we get to know someone is by learning their name. It's been said that a person's name is, to that person, the sweetest and most important sound in any language. Have you ever had the experience of calling someone by the wrong name or forgetting their name? My wife Alexis and I have, on occasion, called one of our children Lola. Unfortunately, as you may have guessed, Lola is our dog. Um, For better or worse, forgetting someone's name communicates to that person that you probably don't know them very well. Jesus knew and called people by name. To ancient Israel the Lord said, Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. On Easter morning, Mary's witness of the resurrected Christ was solidified when Jesus called her by name. Likewise, God called Joseph Smith by name in answer to his prayer of faith. In some cases, Jesus gave his disciples new names that were indicative of their nature, capacity, and potential. Jehovah gave Jacob the new name of Israel, which means one who prevails with God or let God prevail. Jesus gave James and John the name of Bonerges, which meant the sons of thunder. Seeing his future leadership, Jesus gave Simon the name of Cephas or Peter, which means a rock. Just as Jesus knows each of us by name, One way we can come to better know Jesus is by learning His many names. Like the names of Israel and Peter, many of Jesus' names are titles that help us understand His mission, purpose, character, and attributes. As we come to know Jesus' many names, we will come to better understand His divine mission and His selfless character. Knowing His many names also inspires us to become more like Him to develop Christ-like attributes that bring joy and purpose to our lives. A few years ago, President Russell M. Nelson studied all the scriptures concerning Jesus Christ in the Topical Guide. He then invited young adults to study these same scriptures. Concerning Jesus' many names, President Nelson said, Study everything Jesus Christ is by prayerfully and vigorously seeking to understand what each of his various titles and names means personally for you. Following President Nelson's invitation, I began developing my own list of Jesus' many names. My personal list now has over 300 names, and I'm sure there are many more that I haven't discovered yet. While there are some of Jesus' names that are reserved only for Him, I would like to share five names and titles that have application to each of us. I invite you to develop your own list 
as you come to know Jesus by His many names. In doing so, you will find that there are other names, along with their corresponding Christ-like attributes, that you will want to take upon yourself as Jesus' covenant disciple. First, Jesus is the Good Shepherd. As such, Jesus knows His sheep, calleth His own sheep by name, and, as the Lamb of God, gave His life for His sheep. Similarly, Jesus wants us to be good shepherds, particularly in our families and His ministering brothers and sisters. One way we demonstrate our love for Jesus is by feeding His sheep. For those sheep who may be wandering, good shepherds go into the wilderness to find the lost sheep and then stay with them until they return to safety. As good shepherds and as local conditions permit, we should seek to spend more time ministering to people in their homes. In our ministering, texting and technology should be used to enhance but not replace personal contact. Second, Jesus is the high priest of good things to come. Knowing that his crucifixion was just hours away, Jesus said, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Today, as our world is frequently polarized and divided, there is a great need for us to preach and practice positivity, optimism, and hope. Despite any challenges in our past, faith always points toward the future, filled with hope, allowing us to fulfill Jesus' invitation to be of good cheer. Joyfully living the gospel helps us to become disciples of good things to come. Another of Jesus' titles is that He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Consistency is a Christ-like attribute. Jesus always did His Father's will, and His arm is constantly outstretched to save, help, and heal us. As we are more consistent in living the gospel, we'll become more like Jesus. Although the world will experience large swings in its pendulums of popularity as people are tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, consistent gospel living helps us to be steadfast and immovable during the storms of life. We can also demonstrate consistency by accepting President Nelson's invitation to make time for the Lord. Great spiritual strength comes from small and simple things, like developing holy habits and righteous routines of daily prayer, repentance, scripture study, and service to others. Fourth, Jesus is the Holy One of Israel. Jesus' life was a pattern of holiness. As we follow Jesus, we can become a Holy One in Israel. We increase in holiness as we regularly visit the temple, where holiness to the Lord is etched above every entrance. Every time we worship in the temple, we leave endowed with greater power to make our homes places of holiness. For any who do not currently have a recommend to enter the Holy Temple, I invite you to meet with your bishop and prepare yourself to enter or return to that holy place. Time in the temple will increase holiness in our lives. One last name of Jesus is that He is faithful and true. Just as Jesus was ever faithful and always true, His earnest desire is that we exhibit these qualities in our lives. When our faith falters, we can cry out to Jesus, Lord, save me, 
just like Peter as he began to sink in Galilee's stormy sea. On that day, Jesus reached down to rescue the drowning disciple. He has done the same for me, and he will do the same for you. Don't ever give up on Jesus. He will never give up on you. When we are faithful and true, we follow Jesus' call to abide in me, which can also mean stay with me. When we are confronted with questions, when we are mocked for our faith, when the fingers of scorn are pointed at us by those in the world's great and spacious buildings, we remain faithful and we stay true. In these moments, we remember Jesus' plea. Look unto me in every thought. Doubt not, fear not. As we do so, He gives us needed faith, hope, and strength to stay with Him forever. Dear brothers and sisters, Jesus wants for us to know Him because His is the only name under heaven whereby we can be saved. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man can return to the Father except by Him. Jesus is the only way. For that reason, Jesus beckons, Come unto me, follow me, walk with me, and learn of me. With all my heart, I bear witness of Jesus Christ that He lives, that He loves you, and that He knows you by name. He is the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father. He is our rock, our fortress, our shield, our refuge, and our deliverer. He is the light which shineth in darkness. He is our Savior and Redeemer. He is the resurrection and the life. My earnest desire is that you will come to know Jesus Christ by His many names and that you will become like Him as you exemplify His divine attributes in your life. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. In the Book of Mormon, we read of a vital decision made by the prophet Alma in a beloved verse of Scripture. Prior to reviewing those familiar words, please consider with me the difficult circumstances under which that decision was made. A faction of people calling themselves Zoramites had separated from the Nephites and gathered in the borders of the land near the Lamanites. The Nephites had recently defeated the Lamanites in an unprecedented battle in which tens of thousands were killed, and it was greatly feared that the Zoramites would enter into a correspondence with the Lamanites and that it would be the means of great loss. Beyond the concerns of war, Alma had learned that the Zoramites, who had had the word of God preached unto them, were turning to idol worship and perverting the ways of the Lord. All of this weighed heavily on Alma and was the cause of great sorrow. Finding himself in these complex and challenging circumstances, Alma pondered what should be done. In his decision, we read words that were preserved to inspire and instruct us as we navigate the complex and challenging circumstances of our day. And now, as the preaching of the word had a great tendency to lead the people to do that which was just, yea, it had had more powerful effect upon the minds of the people than the sword or anything else which had happened unto them. Therefore, Alma thought it was expedient that they should 
Try the virtue of the Word of God. Among many possible solutions, Alma's faith led them to rely on the power of the Word. It is no coincidence that some of the most powerful sermons found anywhere in Scripture were preached immediately following that decision. In chapters 32 and 33 of Alma, we read his masterful discourse on faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in chapter 34, we find Amulek's seminal teachings on the Atonement of Jesus Christ. Indeed, throughout Scripture, we read of miraculous blessings poured out upon those who have chosen to try the virtue of the Word of God in their lives. I invite you to ponder three examples with me as we turn our focus to the Book of Mormon, a book that President Russell M. Nelson described as our latter-day survival guide. First, reminding his people how the Lord delivered their fathers, Alma taught, Behold, he changed their hearts. Yea, he awakened them out of a deep sleep, and they awoke unto God. Behold, they were in the midst of darkness. Nevertheless, their souls were illuminated by the light of the everlasting word. Perhaps you are feeling as though you were in the midst of darkness. Does your soul ache for illumination? If so, please try the virtue of the Word of God. Second, reflecting on the Lord's conversion of the Lamanites, which he witnessed as a missionary, Ammon said, Behold, how many thousands of our brethren has he loosed from the pains of hell, and they are brought to sing redeeming love, and this because of the power of his word which is in us. Brothers and sisters, there are so many among us who are yearning for someone we love to be brought to sing redeeming love. In all our efforts, let us remember to try the virtue of the Word of God, which is in us. Third, in the book of Helaman we read, Yea, we see that whosoever will may lay hold upon the word of God, which is quick and powerful, which shall divide asunder all the cunning and the snares and the wiles of the devil, and lead the man and woman of Christ in a straight and narrow course across that everlasting gulf of misery and land their souls at the right hand of God in the kingdom of heaven. Are you seeking to cut through all the cunning and the snares and the wiles of the devil so prevalent in the philosophies of our day? Do you desire to disperse the clouds of confusion caused by an overabundance of information in order to focus more singularly on the covenant path? Please try the virtue of the Word of God. As one who has been changed by the power of the Word, I personally testify of this truth so beautifully taught by our beloved prophet, President Russell M. Nelson. Quote, to me, the power of the Book of Mormon is most evident in the mighty change that comes into the lives of those who read it with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ. Many converts forsake much that they once held dear in order to abide by the precepts of that book. It will be your most effective instrument 
in bringing souls unto Jesus the Christ. Close quote. In these and other illustrations, we witness the virtue of the Word of God in the lives of His children. We might ask, what is the source of that virtue or power? As we consider this question, it is essential to remember that the phrase, the Word, as used in Scripture, has at least two meanings. Elder David A. Bednar recently taught that one of the names of Jesus Christ is the Word and that the teachings of the Savior, as recorded in the Holy Scriptures, are also the Word. The prophet Nephi illustrated the relationship between these two meanings when he wrote, Hearken unto these words, and believe in Christ. And if you believe not in these words, believe in Christ. And if ye shall believe in Christ, ye will believe in these words, for they are the words of Christ and he hath given them unto me. Thus we learn that there is virtue in the words of ancient and modern prophets precisely because their words are the Lord's words. My dear friends, accepting this eternal truth is critical to our spiritual survival in the latter days when, as prophesied, there is a famine in the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Ultimately, the virtue of the word of God is the Lord Jesus Christ. As we comprehend this more fully, we can make an eternally significant connection between the role of his prophets and the Redeemer himself. Our love for him, our desire to draw closer to him and to abide in his love, will motivate us to try the virtue of the Word in our lives, both the virtue that flows from Him as our personal Savior and Redeemer and the virtue that flows from Him through the words of the chosen vessels of the Lord. We will come to discern that, as helpful as other sources may be in our study of the Savior and the words of His prophets, they must never become a replacement for them. We must drink deeply and often, directly from the source. I express my love to each of you, my brothers and my sisters. In that love, I plead with you to experience the virtue of the Word of God, particularly through the Book of Mormon, every day of your life. As you do so, I repeat this prophetic promise from President Russell M. Nelson. Quote, I promise that as you prayerfully study the Book of Mormon every day, you will make better decisions every day. I promise that as you ponder what you study, the windows of heaven will open and you will receive answers to your own questions and direction for your own life. I promise that as you daily immerse yourself in the Book of Mormon, you can be immunized against the evils of the day." I testify that our Heavenly Father has given us the Word because He loves us perfectly and wants each of us to return home to live with Him forever. I testify of the Word made flesh, even Jesus the Christ, and of His power to save and to redeem us. I know that His virtue flows through the words of His prophets, both past and present. 
It is the prayer of my heart that we may possess the wisdom and meekness to hold fast to the word of God and stay on the covenant path that leads to exaltation and eternal life. May we continually experience the mighty change available to each of us through the virtue of the word. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. As directed, the congregation will join the choir in singing, Now Let Us Rejoice. After the singing, we will hear from Elder Gary E. Stevenson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He will be followed by Elder Isaac K. Morrison of the Seventy. Elder Quinton L. Cook of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles will then address us. This is the Sunday afternoon session of the 192nd Semi-Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. KSL FM Midvale, KSL Salt Lake City.
Defining moments in life come often and unexpectedly, even when you are still young. Allow me to share a story about a high school student, Kevin, chosen to travel out of state for a student leader event, as told in his own words. My turn in line came, and the official-looking registration clerk asked for my name. She looked at her list and said, So you're the young man from Utah. You mean I'm the only one? I asked. Yes, the only one. She handed me my name, my name tag with Utah printed below my name. As I clipped it on, I felt like I was being branded. I crowded into the hotel elevator with five other high school students with name tags like mine. Hey, you're from Utah. Are you a Mormon? Asked one student. I felt out of place with all these student leaders from all over the country. Yes, I hesitantly admitted. You're the guys who believe in Joseph Smith, who said he saw angels. You don't actually believe that, do you? I didn't know what to say. The students in the elevator were all staring at me. I had just arrived, and already everyone thought I was different. I became a little defensive, but then said, I know that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. Where had that come from, I wondered. I didn't know I had it in me. But the words felt true. Yeah, I was told you were just religious nuts, he said. With that, there was an uncomfortable pause as the elevator door opened. As we gathered our luggage, he walked down the hall laughing. Then a voice behind me asked, Hey, don't Mormons have some sort of another Bible? Oh, no, not again. I turned to see another student who had been in the elevator with me, Christopher. It's called the Book of Mormon, I said, wanting to drop the subject. I picked up my bags and started walking down the hall. Is that the book Joseph Smith translated, he asked. Yes, it is, I answered. I kept on walking, hoping to avoid embarrassment. Well, do you know how I could get one? A scripture I learned in seminary suddenly came to me. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As this entered my mind, I felt ashamed that I'd been so embarrassed. For the rest of the week, that scripture wouldn't leave me. I answered as many questions about the Church as I could, and I made many friends. I discovered I was proud of my religion. I gave Christopher a Book of Mormon. He later wrote me, telling me he had invited the missionaries to his home. I learned not to be embarrassed to share my testimony. I'm inspired by Kevin's courage. By the way, he's now a bishop serving in Indiana. It's a courage repeated every day by faithful members of the Church throughout the world. As I share my thoughts, I invite you to reflect upon these four questions. Do I understand what a testimony is? Do I know how to bear my testimony? What are the obstacles in sharing my testimony? How do I keep my testimony? Your testimony is a most precious possession, often associated with deep spiritual feelings. These feelings are usually communicated quietly and described as a still, small voice. 
It is your belief or knowledge of truth given as a spiritual witness through the influence of the Holy Ghost. Acquiring this witness will change what you say and how you act. Key elements of your testimony confirmed by the Holy Ghost include five elements. God is your Heavenly Father. You are His child. He loves you. Jesus Christ lives. He is the Son of the living God and your Savior and Redeemer. Joseph Smith is a prophet of God called to restore the Church of Jesus Christ. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is God's restored Church on the earth. The restored Church of Jesus Christ is led by a living prophet today. You bear your testimony when you share spiritual feelings with others. As a member of the Church, opportunities to bear your spoken testimony come in formal Church meetings or in less formal one-on-one conversations with family, friends, and others. Another way you share your testimony is through your righteous behavior. Your testimony in Jesus Christ isn't just what you say. It's who you are. Each time you bear vocal witness or demonstrate through your actions your commitment to follow Jesus Christ, you invite others to come unto Christ. Members of the Church stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all places. Opportunities to do this in the digital universe using inspiring content of our own or sharing uplifting content prepared by others are endless. We testify when we love, share, and invite, even online. Your tweets, direct messages, and posts will take on a higher, holier purpose when you also use social media to show how the gospel of Jesus Christ shapes your life. Obstacles to sharing your testimony may include uncertainty about what to say. Matthew Cowley, an early apostle, shared this experience as he departed on a five-year mission at age 17 to New Zealand. Quote, I will never forget the day I left my father's last words to me. My boy, when you go out on that mission— And sometimes when you're called upon, you will think you're wonderfully prepared. But when you stand up, your mind will go completely blank. I said, what do you do when your mind goes blank? He said, you stand up there and with all the fervor of your soul, you will bear witness that Joseph Smith was a prophet of the living God. And thoughts will flood into your mind and words to your mouth, to the heart of everyone who listens. And so my mind being mostly blank during my mission, gave me the opportunity to bear testimony to the greatest event in the history of the world since the crucifixion and resurrection of the Master. Try it sometime, boys and girls. If you don't have anything else to say, testify that Joseph Smith was the prophet of God, and the whole history of the world of the Church will flood into your mind." 
Likewise, President Dallin H. Oaks shared, sometimes testimonies are better gained on the feet bearing them than on the knees praying for them. The Spirit bears witness to the speaker and listener alike. Another obstacle, as Kevin's story emphasized, is fear. As Paul wrote to Timothy, God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love. Be not ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. You see, feelings of fear don't come from the Lord, but most often from the adversary. Having faith as Kevin did will allow you to overcome these feelings and freely share what is in your heart. How do I keep my testimony? I believe a testimony is innate within us yet in order to keep it and more fully develop it. Develop it. Alma taught that we must nourish our testimony with much care. As we do so, it will get root and grow up and bring forth fruit. Without this, it withers away. Each beloved member of the First Presidency has provided us with direction on how to keep a testimony. President Henry B. Eyring lovingly taught us that feasting on the Word of God, heartfelt prayer, and obedience to the Lord's commandments must be applied for your testimony to grow and prosper. President Dallin H. Oaks reminded us to retain our testimony. We need to partake of the sacrament each week to qualify for the precious promise that we will always have His Spirit to be with us. And President Nelson kindly counseled recently and emphasized again this morning, feed your testimony truth. Nourish yourself in the words of ancient prophets and modern prophets. Ask the Lord to teach you how to hear Him better. Spend more time in temple and family history work. Make your testimony your highest priority. My beloved brothers and sisters, I promise you as you more fully understand what a testimony is, and as you share it, you will overcome obstacles of uncertainty and fear, enabling you to nurture and keep this most precious possession, your testimony. We're blessed to have countless examples of ancient and modern-day prophets who have boldly borne their testimonies. Following Christ's death, Peter stood and testified, Be it known unto you all that by the name of Jesus Christ doth this man stand here before you, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Amulek, following Alma's sermon on faith, stated powerfully, I will testify unto you of myself that these things are true. Behold, I say unto you that I do know that Christ shall come among the children of men, and he shall atone for all the sins of the world, for the Lord God hath spoken it. Joseph Smith and Sidney Rignett, upon witnessing a glorious vision of the resurrected Savior, testified, And now, after the many testimonies which have been given of him, this is the testimony which we give of him, that he lives. For we saw him even on the right hand of God, and we heard the voice bearing record that he is the only begotten of the Father. Brothers and sisters, I invite you to seek opportunities to bear your testimony in word and in deed. Such an opportunity came to me recently. At the end of a meeting with the mayor of a capital city in South America, in his chambers with a number of his cabinet officials, as we concluded with very cordial feelings, I hesitantly thought, 
I should share my testimony. Following the prompting, I offered a witness that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God and the Savior of the world. Everything changed at that moment. The spirit in the room was undeniable. It seemed everyone was touched. The Comforter beareth record of the Father and the Son. I'm so grateful I summoned the courage to bear my testimony. When a moment like this comes, grab it and embrace it. You'll feel the warmth of the Comforter inside you when you do. I offer my testimony and witness to you. God is our Heavenly Father. Jesus Christ lives, and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is God's Church on the earth today, led by our dear prophet, President Russell M. Nelson. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. During the Savior's earthly ministry, he noticed a man who was blind. Jesus' disciples asked, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The Savior's firm, loving, and sincere answer reassures us that he is mindful of our struggles. Neither had this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. While some challenges may come because of willful disobedience, we know that many of life's challenges come because of other reasons. Whatever the source of our challenges, they can be a golden opportunity to grow. Our family has not been spared the adversities of life. Growing up, I admired large families. Such families felt appealing to me, especially when I found a church in my teens through my maternal uncle, Safo, and his wife in Takura de Ghana. When Hannah and I were married, we desired the fulfillment of our patriarchal blessings, which indicated that we would be blessed with many children. However, prior to the birth of our third boy, it became medically clear that Hannah would not be able to have another baby. Gratefully, though Kenneth was born in a life-threatening situation to both him and his mother, he arrived safely and his mother recovered. He was able to begin to fully participate in our family life, including church attendance, daily family prayers, scripture study, home evening, and wholesome recreational activities. Though we had to adjust our expectations of a large family, it was a joy to put into practice the teachings from the family, a proclamation to the world, with our three beloved children. Following those teachings added much meaning to my growing faith. As the proclamation states, open quote, marriage between man and woman is essential to his eternal plan. Children are entitled to birth within the bonds of matrimony and to be read by a father and a mother who honor marital vows with complete fidelity, close quote. 
As we put these principles into practice, we were blessed. However, one weekend during my service as a stake president, we experienced perhaps the worst trial parents can face. Our family returned from a church activity and gathered for lunch. Then our three boys went out within our compound to play. My wife felt repeated impressions that something might be wrong. She asked me to check on the children while we were washing the dishes. I felt they were safe since we could hear their voices of excitement from their play. When we both finally went to check on our sons, to our dismay, we found little 18-month-old Kenneth helpless in a bucket of water, unseen by his brothers. We rushed him to the hospital, but all attempts to revive him proved futile. We were devastated that we would not be able, we would not have the opportunity to raise our precious child during this mortal life. Though we knew Kenneth would be part of our family eternally, I find myself questioning why God would let this tragedy happen to me when I was doing all I could to magnify my calling. I had just come home from ministering, from fulfilling one of my duties in ministering to the saints. Why couldn't God look upon my service and save our son and our family from this tragedy? The more I thought about it, the more bitter I became. My wife never blamed me for not responding to her promptings, but I learned a life-changing lesson and made two rules never to be broken. Rule number one, listen to and heed the promptings of your wife. (laughs) Rule number two, if you are not sure for any reason, refer to rule number one. Though the experience was shattering and we continued to grieve, our overwhelming burden was eventually eased. My wife and I learned lessons, specific lessons, from our loss. We came to feel united and bound by our temple covenant. We know we can claim Kenneth as ours in the next world because he was born in the covenant. We also gained experience necessary to minister to others and empathize with their pain. I testify that our bitterness has since dispersed as we exercise faith in the Lord. Our experience continues to be hard, but we have learned with Apostle Paul that we can do all things through Christ which strengthens us if we focus on him. President Russell M. Nelson taught, open quote, when the focus of our lives is on God's plan of salvation and Jesus Christ and his gospel, we can feel joy regardless of what is happening or not happening in our lives. He further said, joy comes from and because of him, close quote. We can be of good cheer 
and be filled with peace in our tough times. The love we feel because of the Savior and his atonement becomes a powerful resource to us in our trying moments. All that is unfair and difficult about life can be made right through the atonement of Jesus Christ. He commanded, In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He can help us endure whatever pain, sickness, and trial we face in mortality. We find many scriptural stories of great and noble leaders such as Jeremiah, Job, Joseph Smith, and Nephi, who were not spared from the struggles and challenges of mortality. They were mortals who learned to obey the Lord even in harsh conditions. During the terrible days in Liberty Jail, Joseph Smith cried out, O God, where art thou? And where is the pavilion that covered thy hiding place? The Lord taught Joseph to enjoy it well and promised that if he did, all these things would give him experience and would be for his good. Reflecting on my own experiences, I realized I have learned some of my best lessons during the hardest times in my life, times that took me out of my comfort zone, difficulties I encountered as a youth while learning about the church through seminary, as a recent convert, and as a full-time missionary, and challenges I faced in my education in striving to magnify my callings and in raising a family have prepared me for the future. The more I cheerfully respond to difficult circumstances with faith in the Lord, the more I grow in my discipleship. The hard things in our lives should come as no surprise once we have entered the straight and narrow path. Jesus Christ learned obedience by the things which he suffered. As we follow him, especially in our difficult times, we can grow to become more like him. One of the covenants we make with the Lord in the temple is to live the law of sacrifice. Sacrifice has always been part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a reminder of the great atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ for all who have lived or will live on earth. I know that the Lord always compensates our righteous desires. Remember the many children I was promised in my patriarchal blessing? That blessing is being fulfilled. My wife and I serve with several hundred missionaries from more than 25 countries in the Ghana Cape Coast Mission. They are as dear to us as if they were literally our own children. I testify that we grow in our discipleship when we exercise faith in the Lord during difficult times. As we do so, he will mercifully strengthen us and help us carry our burdens. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Last October, 
I was assigned, along with President M. Russell Ballard and Elder Jeffrey R. Holland, to visit the United Kingdom, where all three of us served as young missionaries. We had the privilege of teaching and testifying, as well as reliving early Church history in the British Isles, where my great-great-grandfather, Heber C. Kimball, and his associates were the first missionaries. President Russell M. Nelson, teasing us about this assignment, noted that it was unusual to assign three apostles to visit the area where they had served as missionaries in their youth. He acknowledged that all desire to be assigned to visit their original mission. With a big smile on his face, he succinctly explained the precedent that if there is another set of three apostles who served in the same mission over 60 years ago, then they also may receive a similar assignment. <laughs> in preparation for that assignment, I reread The Life of Heber C. Kimball, written by a grandson, Orson F. Whitney, who later was called to the Apostleship. This volume was given to me by my precious mother when I was almost seven years old. We were preparing to attend the dedication of the This is the Place monument on July 24, 1947, by President George Albert Smith. She wanted me to know more about my ancestor, Heber C. Kimball. This book contains a profound statement attributed to President Kimball that has significance for our day. Before sharing the statement, let me provide a little background. While the Prophet Joseph Smith was incarcerated in Liberty Jail, Apostles Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball had the responsibility under terrible adverse circumstances of overseeing the evacuation of the Saints from Missouri. The evacuation was required in large part because of the extermination order issued by Governor Lilburn W. Boggs. Almost 30 years later, Heber C. Kimball, then in the First Presidency, reflecting on this history with a new generation, taught, Let me say to you that many of you will see the time when you will have all the trouble, trial, and persecution that you can stand, and plenty of opportunities to show that you are true to God and His work. Heber continued, To meet the difficulties that are coming, it will be necessary for you to have a knowledge of the truth of this work for yourselves. The difficulties will be of such a character that the man or woman who does not possess this personal knowledge or witness will fall. If you have not got the testimony, live right and call upon the Lord, and cease not until you attain it. If you do not, you will not stand. The time will come when no man nor woman will be able to endure on borrowed light. Each will have to be guided by the light within himself. If you don't have it, you will not stand. Therefore, seek for the testimony of Jesus and cleave to it, that when the trying time comes, you may not stumble and fall." End quote. We each need a personal testimony of God's work 
and the seminal role of Jesus Christ. The 76th section of the Doctrine and Covenants refers to the three degrees of glory and compares the celestial glory to the sun. It then compares the terrestrial kingdom to the moon. It is interesting the sun has its own light, but the moon is reflected light or borrowed light. Speaking of the terrestrial kingdom, verse 79 states, These are they who are not valiant in the testimony of Jesus. We cannot obtain the celestial kingdom and live with God the Father on borrowed light. We need our own testimony of Jesus Christ and His gospel. We live in a world where iniquity abounds and hearts turn from God because of the precepts of men. One of the most compelling examples in the scriptures of Heber C. Kimball's concerns about seeking a testimony of God's work and Jesus Christ is set forth in Alma's counsel to his three sons, Helaman, Shiblon, and Coriantin. Two of his sons had been true to God and his work, but one son had made some bad decisions. To me, the greatest significance of Alma's counsel is that he was imparting it as a father for the benefit of his own children. Alma's first concern, like Heber C. Kimball's, was that each have a testimony of Jesus Christ and be true to God and His work. In Alma's remarkable teaching to his son Helaman, he makes a profound promise that those who put their trust in God shall be supported in their trials and their troubles and their afflictions and shall be lifted up at the last day. While Alma had received a manifestation where he saw an angel, this is rare. Impressions made by the Holy Ghost are more typical. These impressions can be equally as important as angelic manifestations. President Joseph Fielding Smith taught, Impressions on the soul that come from the Holy Ghost are far more significant than a vision. When spirit speaks to spirit, the imprint upon the soul is far more difficult to erase. This leads us to Alma's counsel to his second son, Shiblon. Shiblon was righteous, like his brother Helaman. The counsel I want to emphasize is Alma 38 and 12, which reads in part, See that ye bridle all your passions, that ye may be filled with love. Bridle is an interesting word. When we ride a horse, we use the bridle to guide it. A good synonym might be to direct, control, or restrain. The Old Testament tells us we shouted for joy when we learned we would have physical bodies. The body is not evil. It is beautiful and essential. But some passions, if not used properly and appropriately bridled, can separate us from God and His work and adversely impact our testimony. Let's talk about two passions in particular—first, anger, and second, lust. It is interesting that both left unbridled or uncontrolled can cause great heartache, diminish the influence of the Spirit, and separate us from God and His work. The adversary takes every opportunity to fill our lives with images of violence and immorality. In some families, it is not uncommon for an angry husband or wife to hit a spouse or a child. In July, I participated in a United Kingdom all-party parliamentary forum in London. 
Violence against women and youth was highlighted as a significant worldwide problem. In addition to violence, others have engaged in verbal abuse. The Proclamation on the Family tells us those who abuse spouse or offspring will one day stand accountable before God. President Nelson strongly emphasized this yesterday morning. Please make up your mind that regardless of whether your parents did or did not abuse you, you will not physically or verbally or emotionally abuse your spouse or children. In our day, one of the most significant challenges is contention and verbal abuse related to societal issues. In many cases, anger and abusive language have replaced reason, discussion, and civility. Many have abandoned the admonition of the Savior's senior apostle Peter to seek Christ-like qualities such as temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. They have also abandoned the Christ-like quality of humility. In addition to to controlling anger and bridling other passions, we need to lead pure moral lives by controlling our thoughts, language, and actions. We need to avoid pornography. Evaluate the appropriateness of what we are streaming in our homes and avoid every form of sinful conduct. This brings us to Alma's counsel to his son, Corianton. Unlike his brothers Helaman and Shiblon, Corianton engaged in moral transgression. Because Corianton had engaged in immorality, it was necessary for Alma to teach him about repentance. He had to teach him the seriousness of sin and then how to repent. So Alma's preventive counsel was to bridle passions, but for those who have transgressed to repent. President Nelson gave members profound counsel on repentance at the April 2019 General Conference. He made it clear that daily repentance is integral to our lives. Repentance is not an event. It is a process. It is the key to happiness and peace of mind. He taught daily repentance is the pathway to purity, and purity brings power. If Corianton had done what President Nelson counseled, he would have repented as soon as he had begun to entertain impure thoughts. Major transgressions would not have occurred. The concluding counsel that Alma gave to his sons is some of the most important doctrine in all the scriptures. It relates to the Atonement wrought by Jesus Christ. Alma testified that Christ would take away sin. Without the Savior's Atonement, the eternal principle of justice would require punishment. Because of the Savior's Atonement, mercy can prevail for those who have repented and allow them to return to the presence of God. We would do well to ponder this wonderful doctrine. None can return to God by his or her own good works alone. We all need the benefit of the Savior's sacrifice. All have sinned, and it is only through the Atonement of Jesus Christ that we can obtain mercy and live with God. Alma also gave wonderful counsel to Corianton for all of us who have or will go through the repentance process, regardless of whether the sins are small or as severe as those committed by Corianton. 
Verse 29 of Alma 42 reads, And now, my son, I desire that you should let these things trouble you no more, and only let your sins trouble you with that trouble which shall bring you down unto repentance. Corianton heeded Alma's counsel and both repented and served honorably. Because of the Savior's Atonement, healing is available to all. In Alma's day, in Heber's day, and certainly in our day, we all need to seek our own testimony of Jesus Christ, bridle our passions, repent of our sins, and find peace through the Atonement of Jesus Christ and be true to God and His work. In a recent talk, and again this morning, President Russell M. Nelson said it this way, I plead with you to take charge of your testimony of Jesus Christ. Work for it. Own it. Care for it. Nurture it so that it will grow. Then watch for miracles to happen in your life." End of quote. I am grateful that we will now hear from President Nelson. I testify that President Nelson is the Lord's prophet for our day. I love and treasure the marvelous inspiration and guidance we receive through him. As an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, I bear my sure witness of the Savior's divinity and the reality of his atonement. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. At the conclusion of the conference, we express sincere appreciation to all who have worked so diligently to prepare for these services. We thank those who have spoken and those who have provided the uplifting music. We recognize those who have assisted with translation services and those who have prepared the building and handled all that is needed for this worldwide broadcast. The concluding speaker for this session will be our beloved prophet, President Russell M. Nelson. Following his remarks, the choir will close this conference by singing, God be with you till we meet again. The benediction will then be offered by Elder Jorge M. Alvarado of the Seventy, and the conference will be adjourned. Dear brothers and sisters, during these five magnificent sessions of General Conference, we have once again experienced that the heavens are open. I pray that you have recorded your impressions and will follow through with them. Our Heavenly Father and His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, stand ready to help you. I urge you to increase your efforts to seek their help. Recently, Sister Nelson and I had the opportunity to preview the new Season 4 of the Book of Mormon videos series. We were inspired by them. 
May I show you a brief excerpt from the scene depicting the Savior's appearance to the Nephites? Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, in whom I have glorified my name. Hear ye him. Christ, whom the prophets testified shall come into the world. And behold, I am the light and the life of the world. And I have drunk out of that bitter cup which the Father hath given me, and have glorified the Father in taking upon me the sins of the world, in the which I have suffered the will of the Father in all things from the beginning. Arise! And come forth unto me, that ye may thrust your hands into my side, and also that ye may feel the prints of the nails in my hands and in my feet, that ye may know that I am the God of Israel and the God of the whole earth, and have been slain for the sins of the world. It is significant that the Savior chose to appear to the people at the temple. It is His house. It is filled with His power. Let us never lose sight of what the Lord is doing for us now. He is making His temples more accessible. He is accelerating the pace at which we are building temples. He is increasing our ability to help gather Israel. He is also making it easier for each of us to become spiritually refined. I promise that increased time in the temple will bless your life in ways nothing else can. We currently have 168 operating temples. 
and 53 new temples are under construction and another 54 in the pre-construction design phase. I am pleased to announce our plans to build a new temple in each of the following locations. Busan, Korea, Naga, Philippines, Santiago, Philippines, Eket, Nigeria, Chiclayo, Peru, Buenos Aires City Center, Argentina, Londrina, Brazil, Hebron Preto, Brazil, Huehuetenango, Guatemala, Jacksonville, Florida, Grand Rapids, Michigan, Prosper, Texas, Lone Mountain, Nevada, and Tacoma, Washington. We are also planning to build multiple temples in selected large metropolitan areas where travel time to an existing temple is a major challenge. Therefore, I am pleased to announce four additional temples near Mexico City where new temples will be built in Cuernavaca, Pachuca, Toluca, and Tula. My dear brothers and sisters, may you focus on the temple in ways you never have before. I bless you to grow closer to God and Jesus Christ every day. I love you. May God be with you till we meet again. I pray in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.
Our dear Heavenly Father, we come before thee at the end of this wonderful five sessions of General Conference with humble and willing hearts to do thy will. We are grateful for living prophets, seers, and revelators, and especially we are grateful for President Russell M. Nelson for the announcement of more temples. Father, we plead to thee that we will be able to grow closer in our testimonies of thy Son, Jesus Christ, and help us to worship in thy temple and to apply the lessons that we have received during this conference. Bless each one of our homes, our families, and everybody that have connected through means of broadcast, conference, state centers, homes around the world, that they will keep feeling the Spirit and to make a determination to follow thy Son, Jesus Christ, which we prayed with all our heart for peace in the world and those in distress for the many situations around the world. We love thee, Heavenly Father, in the name of thy Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been a broadcast of the Sunday afternoon session of the 192nd Semi-Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Speakers were selected from leaders of the church. Music was provided by the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. This broadcast has been furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. 
any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited. You're listening to the 192nd Semi-Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on KSL FM Midvale, KSL Salt Lake City.